Tonight on Arena, Wicked Little Letters, Memory and Perfect Days are the movies up for reviews and Armstrong Mopan on Tales of the City coming to the United Kingdom. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and we are available on live stream rte.ie forward slash arena tonight. In our film reviews, poison pens, time well spent, and unreliable remembrances. In wicked little letters, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley share the screen. This time, sharing scenes as opposed to playing older and younger versions of the same character as they did in the Lost Daughter. Vim Vendors brings us Perfect Days, a film about taking the time to appreciate the simple things in life. An unusual film this has been Oscar nominated for Best International Feature and in memory Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard we have a twisty tale about a man with early onset dementia and what that means for the people affected by the actions he cannot recall. Dee Malumby, Dave Hanratty have been watching for us and they are with me in studio this evening. Let's start with Wicked Little Letters. Olivia Coleman and of course our very own Jesse Buckley involved here. We're in a town called Little Hampton in England, local woman Edith begins to receive letters of insulting profanities. Who gets the blame? What would you guess now, now that it was a rowdy Irish woman called Rose who's played by Jesse Buckley? In some ways, I, I did say that to say, Dee Malumby and Dave Hamratty with me. In some ways, Dave, it sounds a bit like a comic book setup, you know, nasty letters from a rowdy Irish woman to a quite tight lipped and uptight British woman. But there's a there's a real story somewhere behind all of this, is there? Is there are there real people? Yeah, it's based on a true story uh, in the tw- like, like in 1920s Britain uh, mm. that kind of quote unquote went viral, you know, for the time. And it does sound like you say like a, the the work of a fevered imagination, and it's mm. so broad. This film is incredibly broad. It's a comedy and a drama, but it's very much a comedy first. And everyone's kind of acting at 110. percent You know, you have Olivia Colman in this role where she's very devoutly religious. She's very buttoned up. She's under the kind of auspices of a strict parenthood. And then you've got Jesse Buckley next door. Incredible contrast. Rock and roll, cursing all the time. And I should say at the outset, if you have any problems with foul language, just you know approach mm. this with caution because there's foul language in pretty much every single scene. But it is incredibly cartoonish in a way, but there's a little bit of heart there as well. All right. Well, I found one scene with no bad language in it. Um, it's the newsreel scene because if something went viral at that time, that was how things went viral. It was on the path A news. And this, I think, uh, will, will set for us the kind of period feel that comes off the piece. The Home Secretary, Mr Edward Short, was compelled to answer a question in Parliament about the ever-growing scandal of the Little Hampton Letters. The poison pen missives, obscene and malicious in equal measure, are causing widespread distress across the county. Now numbering over 100, Mr Short called them a national embarrassment, but said he has immeasurable faith in his exemplary police force to find the culprit in the end. The mystery of the letters continues to captivate the nation, in which every household has an opinion on whether Miss Rose Gooding is innocent or guilty. You see, even before there was social media, every everybody had an opinion on whether somebody was guilty or not guilty, and that that um, is the, the the newsreel that we get as part of this film. We get little letters, D. Malumbi. Does that set the tone? Because that to me sounds like a very broad kind of farcical 
British comedy. Is that what we have here? Because the two, if you think of Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley, they are capable of certainly that, but much else besides. Yeah, I mean, both the actresses, it has to be said, uh, give fantastic performances in this. And as much as I absolutely adore Jesse Buckley and everything, I have to say Olivia Colman absolutely steals every single scene. She's just such a delight to watch on the screen. She communicates so much through such subtle and then sometimes very overt facial expressions. Mm. She just reacts to everything. And we have to remember, you know, Olivia Colman's background is in comedy. You know, she would have come from such a TV series as uh, that Mitchell and Webb look yeah. and uh, Peep Show and stuff like that and her her background in comedy is just so she is a an expert at work. She is just so fantastic in this. Um, I liked uh, Anjana Vassan is kind of, I suppose, the third build, um, highest uh, female character. She plays woman police officer Gladys Moss. And I say woman police officer because that, yeah. <laughs> that is how they all refer to her yeah. as. And she is, you know, absolutely beleaguered with the fact that she's surrounded by all these inept police men who cannot do their job And properly. she's the one that's kind of saying innocent until proven guilty type yeah. of thing. Yeah. She's the one who kind of really um, you know, takes Rose aside and everything because the way that they treat um, uh, Olivia Coleman's characters, uh, Edith, her you know first person account, and she kind of describes you know we see how her she describes how um, Edith and Rose had this falling out, but really her word is taken as gospel. So when mm. you get into like the court scenes and everything, um, it's kind of strange because um, uh, Gladys is trying to like really insist on this evidence of like the actual handwriting of the letters, and they're saying, well, we don't actually accept that as court evidence. <laughs> So it's kind of mad. And, you know, it's interesting because we were talking a bit earlier about how, you know, this is based on a true story. I I was trying to figure out, is that part of the story actually true? Um, So it's, yeah, it's a bit strange in that way. But what I did really appreciate was when they get into the third act and actually unveiling uh, the culprit, that actually does stick quite, if you'll pardon the pun, to the letter with what happened in real life, which was very interesting. Right, Okay. Uh, Now, I've mentioned this kind of wild character of Rose that uh, Jesse Buckley is is playing here. I can't imagine Jesse Buckley just giving us a big, broad Irish, you know, drunken woman character. Does she do more with it than it seems to be on the page or in its description, Dave? She does, but it is that. It is a broad, drunken Irish woman character. She drinks... We're not past that. Uh, But but it's it's so of the time. I think it would be anachronistic. And everyone, like I said, everyone is written in such a way that they are so over the top. They are cartoon characters. They're characters of the capital C. Uh, There is heart to her, but ultimately, yeah, she's introduced, you know, she can drink you under the table. (laughs) She plays guitar. She has lovers, you know, like she's a scandal. You know, she's a walking, talking scandal. In a, in a small little village in, in England. Yeah, and it's remarked upon, I want to say, is that it's like when she arrives after the war, it's like, this is what we feared would happen. You know, Irish people coming here and being bodied and not, not in their wonderful, you know, buttoned down mm. English town. Um, but she has a daughter, you know, who she loves clearly and wants to remain with and keep custody of as this battle kind of rages around her. And you get, you know, the requisite scenes of yeah. the strings coming in and Jesse Buckley's eyes welling up. But mostly she is playing this with an impish grin. But it is, Jesse Buckley's a wonderful dramatic actress. We know this. I enjoyed seeing her in this kind of unfurled comedic role for the most part, but she does manage to get the balance as does Libby Cullen. I don't this think you were as you were as happy with that characterization, D. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any fault of Jesse Buckley's performance. You know, she is kind of giving it her all as being this drinker who's like effing and blinding to her heart's mm. content and everything. But I just found the portrayal of the Irish gen- generally in this film just so cringely stereotypical. You know, they even have the guitar in the house because naturally we're so creative and musical and all of this. And Singing I just... 
time. I just find it really hard to shake off mm. and you know the fact that you have the Irish versus British tensions and you know um, uh, uh, the character of Edith's her house is very like ju- juxtaposed with um, Rose's house and that she's in this very uptight highly reserved yeah. um, very British kind of dark very oppressive household whereas in the house next door you know the light is coming through the windows and all of this Okay, I just find it kind of uh, not upsetting, I suppose, but a bit infuriating, I suppose, that we were seeing Still these same that. old cliches being rolled out. Okay, well, let's listen to a scene. And I was about to say, she's not the only one that Fs and blinds, but of course, we're about to hear a letter <laughs> that that has been read, uh, by, been read by the Timothy Spall character here uh, to um, to the local constable played by Hugh Skinner. But purportedly, these are the letters coming from the Irish woman. So it supposedly is her effing and blinding. So be warned, there is some very strong language in the midst of this anonymous letter sent to Olivia Coleman's character. Dear Edith, you foxy ass old whore. Holy heavens. No. Carry on. Don't worry about me, Constable. I rise above it. You really are a tricksy old fucker. You belong in hell, probably. And you're a sad, stinky bitch as well. In the end, I think it's just jealousy. <laughs> That's only 25 seconds of the letter. It's all we can do. By the way, I should have, it's Hugh Skinner as the constable who's doing the reading there. <coughs> Timothy Spall and Olivia, Olivia Coleman are the two characters listening to that awful word. Is it worth, for all of that... I did find myself laughing at the few clips that yeah. I, I got to see and, and listen to. Is it worth going to see in the cinema, D? I think generally it's still very much a crowd pleaser. I think you are going to find yourself, you know, giggling along with it. It's interesting when uh, that clip that we just played there, because that's kind of the first letter that, mm. you know, the ca- the characters hear of it. And I suppose us as audience members are exposed to. And I remember sitting there in the audience and no one really quite knowing whether we should be laughing at this. Because, I mean, the language is quite outrageous, even for like, it's obviously said in the 1920s, yeah. but even for the contemporary era, it's quite shocking. Yeah. quite appalling uh, but I do think it's a bit of fun obviously you've got the kind of mystery element with who is writing these mm. elements uh, who is letters. writing these letters rather uh, element to it as well and um, Timothy Spall who you also also mentioned there he deserves a lot of credit too he gives a great performance as the very domineering intimidating and at times just plain abusive uh, patriarch so great performances I have to say and it's a bit of fun you right. know stars I'd give it three and a half stars like I said the the Portrayal of the Irish just It'll did frustrate yeah. me a bit, a bit too higgledy piggledy. But um, I, I think anyone yeah. who goes to it will enjoy. Will, it. will enjoy it. Three and a half. What are you saying, Dave? Yeah, it's a three. I, like <laughs> it's impossible to take seriously. I take the Irish <laughs> thing. I, I know what he's saying, but like it didn't bother me. I didn't think of it once. You know, I, like, yeah. I just thought that everyone here is just so ridiculous that like it's it's a stage play. It's a farce. And possibly there are people in in the UK saying there is nobody like that in England. Hundred percent. Right you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think you know there is a mystery element here. I will say that you don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to crack the code. I did it in the opening scene, but I will say as well that like ultimately that's okay because the film yeah. doesn't overplay its hand with that regard it reveals what's really happening you know well, long before the end credits roll but it does overplay its hand with the language and I'm not prude it's more like you know you've heard it once they keep doing the joke over and over yeah. again it's written by a comedian called Johnny Sweet it works in places it doesn't work in other places but I will say I did see it with a very game crowd and everyone was absolutely roaring the house down laughing so if you get it with a crowd you know it's a real kind of easy escapist comedy drama feel good movie three out of five yeah. it's grand I, I 
has that feel of it from what you're both saying. Three out of five, three and a half out of five, respectively, then for Wicked Little Letters. Next, let's move on to a film that doesn't show its hand very quickly at all. This is Perfect Days from German Hotel and Arena Guest on Tuesday. In fact, Vim Vendors. Film tells the story of a Tokyo toilet cleaner, Hirayama, who takes particular care in everything he does. Meditative film, I think, is one way we could describe it for sure. It's up for Best International Film at the Oscars and came uh, about when Vendors was approached to make a series of short films showcasing the architectural merit of Tokyo's public toilets. And as Vim Vendors said to me himself, D, you think, you want me to make a film about toilets? And you think, he's going to make a film about toilets? How is he going to do with that? He makes an extraordinary kind of character study here via this toilet as a... It's not quite the MacGuffin, but it's 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 not it's central to the plot. But this character is the real hero and the real thing that keep, kept me watching. Yeah, you become absolutely invested in this character of Hirayama, who really does take such pride in all he does. And it's such an interesting film because really it's quite mundane. We're just following this man as, you know, he gets up, he mm. makes his bed, he waters his plants, uh, gets ready for work, goes work and then comes home and has a little read and then goes to bed again. I mean, yeah. that's kind of, you know, um, a lot of the movie. And yet it's punctuated by a lot of charm and a lot of humour. And I think Hirayama is a character that you very very quickly fall absolutely in love with. He's so purposeful and so relaxed and so content with his little life. Like every morning he opens his door and he looks up at the sky and just has this big grin on his face. It's such an infectious love of life and it's it ends up really being quite moving. Yeah, and the actor here, uh, Koji Yakusho, award-winning role for him at Cannes, won an award there. Uh, A lot of it is down to just... He's so at ease on camera. It has the feel of a documentary of it. He's playing it so naturalistically. Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking of, you know, Big Brother and how, you know, we'll watch people do nothing and do those mundane tasks. This is obviously a lot more artfully shot, of course. Um, And you get incredible atmosphere. You get the sights of Tokyo. You get the sounds of the music that Hirayama loves, which is a lot of songs from the 1960s. All on cassette tape. Which is beautiful, by the way. It's just so, like, a gorgeous analogue throwback. The first song you hear in this is House of the Rising Sun by the Animals, which Mm. always hits. Um, But Hirayama doesn't say all that much himself. I, mean, I was going to say, I think when we hear that, it's the first words we hear and it's a good 10 or 12 minutes into the at, movie. At least, yeah, yeah. And you do kind of feel it in that regard. This is slow cinema, but it's only two hours long and if you can turn off the world, you will be rewarded. Mm. This is a magic spell. I fell in love with this. I fell in love with the character. The lead performance by Koji Yakusho is incredible, especially because it is largely dialogue free, but he's so expressive. There's so much love to him. I saw this a week ago and I can't stop thinking about it. Mm. He's the kind of character that I want to go for a beer with and give a hug to. You know, he's just so interesting. But also what I love about this as well is there is an ambiguity this is a man who appears to love life completely and implicitly but there are questions and we do wonder if actually there's some sadness buried under the surface and it does that with such grace and such elegance that I was really captivated Yeah a bit of a backstory starts to come in you're not even sure who the people are when they arrive there's a niece that arrives there's a sister there's a a sister's ex-husband all of whom you kind of half work out as you're going along, but they're not that important. The, the plot isn't the thing that's driving us here. What is driving us? What, what's holding us? I think it is, like I said, just that absolute like kind of love of life. And mm. it's just like and such a small a, life. It's not yeah. like he's not out drinking beer and having a wild time every night. Yeah. And it's such a like, it's just a, a really lovely viewing experience. And I was kind of surprised at how often I found myself smiling and laughing at the movie as well. Mm. There's an awful lot of um, humour in it and just kind of 
of the absolute like beauties of kind of everyday life. Every day he goes to the park to have lunch and he looks up and he uses this camera that he brings to um, take a photo of like the sun coming through the leaves and he ends up with some gorgeous photos and you see him like go home and just organise them into little piles. Um, Elsewhere he's um, cleaning a toilet and a tourist uh, goes into it and she discovers that when you lock the toilet door um, the the front screen goes from see-through to opaque and she just starts laughing at herself at the absolute absurdity (laughs) of this. And it's interesting because you mentioned kind of the the niece and the sister there and you get kind of just a little bit of an idea of why, Mm. you know, Hirayama might be the way he is but not a lot. And that comes really, you know, close to the end of the movie and there's a scene without giving too much away at the end of the film where he meets this um, businessman and they have this conversation which has this profound effect at Hirayama and he ends up kind of reverting to this childlike innocence and playfulness with this um, man and it ends up just having this kind of really profound effect on him and on the audience and you end up just kind of leaving the film feeling really elated. It's so powerful and I too have been thinking about it ever and since And not I only that, I mean, the, the public toilet aspect of it, it's just easy to <laughs> laugh at this and think, oh yeah, whatever, because I have done it several times, <laughs> build it as the, the toilet film, you know. But they are beautiful. Oh, these things are incredible. These, they are architecturally beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And his, Hiriyama's pride in cleaning them and keeping them absolutely perfect for people to use. Yeah. It's, and he, even though these people will walk by maybe after a drunk night out or something and they'll kick over a sign, but he won't get mad or anything. You know, like he, he's very diligent. He's very professional. And it's a great contrast to another character in the film who is his kind of younger, like, co-worker, yeah. who is just this reckless guy <laughs> who wants to chase a girl and he's asking for money. He's trying to sell his yeah. cassette tapes, all this kind of stuff. But there's a, and also has this penchant for rating everything in his life out of 10 which is a great running gag um, but it's, that's what this film is about and the scene that Dee was discussing with the businessman is so wonderful and so beautiful yeah. it's about the collisions in life that we have with people and it's about how we treat people and like how we really are underneath the surface and how we all ultimately deserve love but maybe we find it hard to give that to other people and to convey it that way it, this is a genuinely beautiful beautiful film and again if you tell someone it's about a toilet cleaner they're going to be like oh not for me you need to see this film yeah yeah because yeah, it, it if there happens to be a toilet cleaner in it, it's about much more than that. So much more. Stars from you. Uh, four is. bordering on four and a half. I really can't stop thinking about it and I can't wait to see it again. All right. What are you saying, Dee? Yeah, I feel like four, four and a half for me too. It was just such a like gorgeous movie. I'm still kind of thinking about it. And if there's a film that you see that makes you fall in love with life again, like what does that tell you? Except that it's, it is a perfect day. <laughs> and you'll get to hear Lou Reed more yes. than, I think you get to hear a more A few than times. A yeah. few times, yeah. yeah. And that's where Perfect Days is the title of the film. Perfect uh, Day, obviously, the title of the song. So four and four and a, four and a half, some kind of heading, bordering towards the perfect from both of you. I think it's safe to say there. Um, and the movie is called, um, what is the movie called? Memory. 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 How appropriate. I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and I spoke to him about it on Tuesday. No, I'm not, no, the memory is the name of the next movie. What is oh, the, yeah. perfect, perfect days. days. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, memory is where we're moving on to now. The final film for tonight, Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard, a tale about a man with early onset dementia and what that means for the people affected by the actions you cannot recall. Give it's you need to we need to know who the Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard characters are here really to get a sense of what's involved. 
Dave. Yeah, Jessica Chastain, wonderful actress, plays a social worker named Sylvia. Uh, she has trauma in her past and she goes to a high school reunion one night. She's clearly not having a great time. And a man approaches her, played by Peter Sarsgaard. He plays a character called Saul, but not, not a word is spoken. He sits down next to her. She's clearly uncomfortable. She gets up and leaves, goes home. He follows her all the way home. He sleeps outside of her apartment and you're wondering, what is the connection here? Who is this person? It turns out Peter Sarsgaard's character is suffering from early onset dementia. His age is never given, but Peter Sarsgaard's in his 50s, so we should assume. Um, she initially confronts him with a horrible moment of her past that she mm. says he was participatory in turns out that may not be the case from there a relationship forms so it's about these very broken characters again kind of feeding off the perfect days thing it's about people who deserve love but the problems that they face in their lives for different reasons and it's all about the union of these two characters and also crucially other characters trying to keep them apart and the other aspect of that is so the, you have the Jessica Chastain as Sylvia the, the, the woman in question here Peter Sarsgaard as Saul this man with early onset dementia it's his family that we need to know a little bit about I think um, the brother Isaac and the brother's daughter um, Sarah or Sarah Yeah so Isaac basically um, he's the one that cares for uh, Saul and mm. Saul also has this really nice uh, relationship with his niece who is um, Isaac's uh, daughter and it's kind of interesting because initially in the film um, we're learning a bit more about uh, Sylvia his life, we learn that she's a recovering alcoholic. You know, the very first scene of the uh, film is set at an AA meeting at which she's celebrating, you know, an anniversary of sobriety. Um, she has a very close relationship with her sister Olivia, who she frequently visits with her um, daughter Anna. However, she has grown um, distant, uh, distant from her uh, mother. Their relationship is quite um, strained. And it's only really after um, that kind of scene where Saul follows uh, Sylvia home and she realises kind of the, the you know, um, that there's something wrong exactly yeah. with um, Saul that we kind of, we follow his family and we meet them for the first time. And it's really interesting because from Saul, you know, being such a like initially menacing character and I think um, the director, uh, Michelle Franco, deserves a lot of credit for that scene because when he's following her home, it really is quite sinister and you don't know exactly mm. what's going on. But then once um, Saul is at home again, he's perfectly legible you know, he's having these conversations with his brother and niece and just acting totally normal. And he even reflects, I haven't had an episode like that in a while. And I think that Peter Sarsgaard really deserves a lot of credit for his um, performance right. as Saul because he he alternates between this kind of zoning out. But then other times he can be like so charming, so uh, witty. And, and that's kind yeah. of the condition that we're dealing with here. kind of tragedy is in, is yes. in that precise uh, dichotomy, I guess. Jessica Chastain then, let's listen to a clip uh, um, she's visiting uh, Peter Sarsgaard Saul, who she found sleeping outside, as, as you've both mentioned. This is the brother Isaac is present here, played by John, Josh Charles, and also the daughter Sarah, played by Elsie Fisher. You know, you really scared us. Me? Hi. Mm. You want coffee? No, I'm all right. Come see. Right. You came all the way out of here just to see me? Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You were gone for a whole night. It's amazing you didn't catch the million. Well, I haven't been sick in years. You just got lost a minute ago. No, I didn't get lost. I went to the bathroom. Yeah, and you couldn't find your way back. Hey, enough. Enough. Hey, enough. I'm going to get a coffee. You know, he cried on the phone. Did you leave the party alone? 
Did you leave the party alone? No. Did I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I pulled up the wrong clip there. That that, but that one gives you a sense of the family dynamic. That's the Saul played by uh, Peter Sarsgaard and the brother Isaac Joel Charles, and it's the the niece there at the end who's speaking to him. And you really get a sense there of that lovely relationship between the niece and the uncle, and how tender she is with him. Yeah, Elsie Fisher's a great young actress. You've seen her in eighth grade, um, and this is a very tender film. There, and the relationships are all kind of very fractious. Again, it is about people who are just unable to kind mm. of you know embrace like uh, like like themselves, and and there's so much of rejection and denial this is a film that's juggling with an awful lot though like incredibly sensitive subject matter you're dealing with you know alcoholism and recovery you're dealing with um, sexual abuse you're dealing with dementia um, and so on and so forth and, and family members who are you know kind of just not clicking with each other um, and I wondered what like what would attract actors such as Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard to this and I think it's a chance to showcase their range this is a film that is entirely carried on the performances um, and they're yeah. both brilliant performances in the and it's, it's the two of them to, to a large extent it's uh, Jessica you know, the families are in there and, and yeah. obviously the others are there too but it's in some ways it's a four-hander but the two yes. the Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard and they need to be strong most. to carry this and they do carry it I think the writing lets it down ultimately it has that kind of small indie film problem of not quite knowing where to go or how to finish it's a very admirable project but if these two weren't in the leads it wouldn't be mm. worth going out yeah and you, you've mentioned you both you mentioned Peter Sarsgaard Jessica Chastain does she fulfil the remit for you in that respect as well Dean? yeah I think that they both give um, immaculate performances I think Peter Sarsgaard Sarsgaard obviously has the more challenging job, but actually in the end, we find out that they're both the characters are kind of broken in this kind of, um, you know, scene that's full of revelations. Mm. And yeah, I, I have to say, I don't think it's just the actors, though. I think it's also like particularly well um, directed Michelle Franco. Um, he's Who's best well used to the whole uh, dysfunctional family exactly, area. Exactly. That's kind of a theme that he uh, dealt with. People might know him for his film After Lucia, which uh, won the prize and certain regard at uh, the 2012 uh, Cannes Film Festival. So I do think it's a very well directed film as well. But I, I would agree with Dave in that I do think the writing mm. lets it down a bit because I didn't feel like all the themes were as fully developed as they could have been. Uh, and one final thing it's uh, thank you for a 100 minute film one hour and 40 minutes yes you know. I was delighted <laughs> and I, I find myself they packed a lot into that if you do it right you can pack it all into the 100 minutes f- time frame Dave, yeah, true. Give me stars. It does move at a clip. Yeah, I mean, it's a two and a half for me, which I you know, feel almost kind of bad about because because it is admirable and it is dealing with real adult themes and the acting is on point. But I just wanted more from the writing. When it ended, it was kind of like, oh, okay, that's the ending. I understand why, but you could have done a bit more. All right, so you're slightly disappointed, but you're blaming that on the writing two and a half. And what are you saying, Dee? Uh, slightly more, uh, slightly less harsh, I would say. But in the end, I found it very tender. I found it very touching um, and intense and a really interesting viewing experience. So three stars for me. Three stars from Dee um, Malumbi. Dee Malumbi and Dave Hanrat here, two reviewers tonight. Wicked Little Letters and Memory go on general release tomorrow. The other film, Perfect Days, will be in selected cinemas from tomorrow also. San Francisco comes to England to the Cotswolds, no less, in Mona of the Manor, the latest fictional instalment from Armistad Mopan's much-loved Tales of the City series. Mona Ramsey has been the custodian of Easley House since the death of her husband, Lord Teddy Roughton, in 1984. She takes the pain paying guests in this grand, slightly decrepit country manor, which she shares with her adopted son, Wilfred. This is the tenth in the series of the uh, Tales of the City of Armistad Mopan. 
Pam. An American couple, Rhonda and Ernie Blaylock, come to stay, but if Mona thinks she has secrets to keep, they soon pale into significance when Wilfred happens upon hidden truths about their guests. Absolutely delighted that Armistad Mopan joins me on the programme this evening to talk about this and more, I am sure. Uh, we spoke, Armistad, it's, I don't expect you to remember an interview from 10 years ago, but it was 10 years ago uh, at the time of the days of Anna Madrigal. And I remember speaking to you at that time, 2014, that we were talking about the ninth and final book in the Tales yeah. of the City series. Uh, yeah. But no, you moved to England um, since then and who followed you over but that crowd of renegades from San Francisco <laughs> who had been with you through, through nine novels. When did they knock at the door and say, you needn't think that Moving mm-hmm. Continent is going to get rid of us, Mr. Mopin? Well, it was... Uh uh, yeah, it was roughly that time when lockdown came. I found myself uh, contemplating what life was like in Easley House, and uh, uh, I've done this before, as you have mm. noticed. Uh, <laughs> I, I should never make set deadlines for myself, but I felt like I, I needed to say something about Mona because I'd sort of neglected her. A lot of fans were telling me that too. What happened to her? Mm. She, she had that banner house. Where is she? So this book attempts to answer that. Yeah. So so Mona was the one who came knocking, saying, "You're not you're not getting rid of me that easily." And Mona was the one. Yeah. And <laughs> once she arrived, I suppose it was inevitable that some others would knock yeah, on the door, saying, "She didn't take no for an answer." Yeah. We're we're not going away either. Um. So this this dilapidated place that she finds herself in, were, were you in a in a dilapidated country house during lockdown that put brought this uh, into your no, mind? No, not during lockdown, but when I first wrote about Easy House, which was, God, I don't in baby cakes, whenever that was years ago. I've been writing this damn thing for 50 years. <laughs> occurred to me the other day. And uh, when I was a person that I had met in London had given me some names of some people I might like to look up. And one of them was uh, Lord Jamie Needpath, who owned this house in the Cotswolds. So I went and was enchanted by this place. Um, it was just everything I dreamed of for, that I wanted in a country house, including, as you have already noted, a certain air of dilapidation. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, it, when I visited again 40 years later, he was there. We were both gray by then. <laughs> Uh, but he couldn't have been more charming and uh, invited me in to see what is basically the the tallest fountain in England that mm. shoots up I don't know how many feet uh, in front of his house. And uh, yeah, so it, it, you know, the love yeah. affair between that place and my imaginary place continues. That's the beauty of writing books. You can, you can live in such a place and, uh, not have to keep it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have the you don't have the maintenance to worry no, about. Which is don't why, have the maintenance. Yeah, which is why I suppose Mona in in Mona of the Manor finds herself, uh, you know, having to take in paying guests basically to pay the bills, and she yeah, can, yeah. she can she can sort of tick off in a box what each paying guest paid for, whether it was a car repair or whether it was you know whether yeah. it was some aspect <laughs> of the roof tile that yeah. needed to be fixed. Yeah. She knows such and such a guest paid for that. When you were writing, I mean, all of the um, Tales of the City books, I would I would hazard to say, 
there was all, I mean, particularly in the early days, it grew out of your the newspaper column at the time into, into the books. It pretty much was dealing with that very difficult period in the history of homosexuality, the history of gayness, and particularly in America, in and around the AIDS crisis. This was a huge deal at the time. And it was very much, yes, you were entertaining us and giving us wonderful characters, but you were also possibly opening the minds of readers to these areas that were hidden and, and simply not talked about. Was there an equivalent in the writing of Mona of the Manor? You mean it sounds ah lovely? Let's get all let's get some characters up into a lovely country house, isolated away from all of that terrible thing and those terrible things that society might bring to us. Was there something scratching at you that you thought I can write about this using my fiction as well? Yeah, well, the main thing that was scratching at me was a discovery I made when I got over here that some English people uh, are not comfortable with transgender people. I had a reporter at the, uh, I think she was at the Times of London, who got all stiff with me and said, well, that's a kind of controversial issue. And I said, well, what's controversial about it? They're human beings, and they deserve respect like anybody else. Um, and uh, and I realized that there was a whole breed here, of, I guess they're called TERFs, aren't they, uh, of people that uh, that don't think that that trans people are full-fledged human beings. And so I wanted to address it, and I could address it, even mm-hmm. though I'm writing about something that happened 30 years ago because there was, you know, that sort of bigotry has been slow to go. Yeah. Uh, and Mona Ramsey is a transgender woman. That, uh, uh, that's that's the that's the situation that, that she is in, so I guess she was away. No, she's, her mother is. I beg her your pardon, her, her mother, her mother. Her mother uh, is a, a transgender. So that that gave you a, a, a lens through which to view this particular aspect. But why 1984? Why did I suppose the characters had to still be alive? Is one part yeah, of the story that's exactly what it is? But was they there had to be alive? <laughs> <laughs> was was there some part of that time in Britain? I mean, it's a very potent time in terms of British social history. The 80s, in in particular, in and around Margaret Thatcher, the miners' strike, all of those very difficult yeah, times, yeah, and of course the AIDS things. crisis was part of British history as well. It wasn't as if it was confined to the, to, the, to the United States. Was there something about that period that was attractive? Well, just what you've named it, you know, the Thatcherism and uh, how that was dealt with. And um, uh, and to be honest, I, I drew on a lot of information from my husband, who was living here then when he was a young man, mm. and uh, who told me all about the fridge and... and uh, what happens on Hampstead Heath after dark and uh, a lot of things that have proved useful in this novel. Yeah, because um, uh, Wilfred's son, adopted son, or sorry, Mona's adopted son, Wilfred, goes to the fridge, which is a big a gay venue in, in or gay spot in, in London. And I misread it in one of the chapters. I said, eat the fridge? And then I realised, oh no, it's E at the fridge, Ecstasy, the drug ecstasy plays a big role here as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was popular then, very popular. Um, it still is, I guess. Mm. I, I couldn't tell you. I'm 80 years old. I've, I've, got, I've come to my senses eventually about <laughs> what I can do and not do. 
I, I, but I, I was interested that Mona, for example, who is the mother essentially of of Wilfred, she's certainly the adopted mother of, of yeah, Wilfred. Yeah, she's his mother. She's mm. so worried about him going off to have E at the fridge and the gay lifestyle that he might be leading down in that awful London place in comparison to the safety of this lovely spot in the Cotswolds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she, so she becomes a mother at that moment, you know, she... She's just fretting over him. She's not that she disapproves or anything, but mm. she's worried for his safety. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was fun to let her deal, have to have to her deal with that issue because there was a time when she was so rebellious of her mother uh, that uh, she just cut her out of her life. You know. Yeah, that that's what I was, I was going to say to you. Isn't it a bit rich of of Mona of all people to be saying, "Do what your mother tells you," you know? Cause yeah, she, she yeah. certainly didn't. A mother worries. She she catches herself saying, "A mother worries at some point," and, <laughs> and can, has to bite her tongue, you know. Another interesting, I mentioned the American couple that come into the situation here, uh, Rhonda, uh, Rhonda and Ernie, husband and wife, which brings us into Ernie is involved in the re-election campaign for Jesse Helms. You might explain uh, Jesse Helms and the sort of politics that Jesse Helms held dear to his heart. Well, he was the, he was the most homophobic United States senator. And it was quite so vocal about it that people began to wonder why it was such an issue with him. But um, the irony is that I worked for him when I was a young man at his TV station. And so that was very close to home, too. Bringing that in, I could draw on what I remembered of of him and me at that time, you know. I I always said, you know, he remained the same. He was consistent, and, but I wasn't, you know. Yeah, because at that time you were you were obeying the rules that society demanded of you. You were keeping quiet about your homosexuality. I sure was. Yeah, you were doing everything that your family wanted. Your family a very wasting a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Are you still Don't annoyed at your, you? Are you still annoyed at yourself about that? Because I've seen you in in the past, literally berating yourself for not having dealt with that earlier. Well, quite I was, harsh you know, on yourself. I was, was thirty two years old before I came out. I mean, that's late. If you're going to have, if you want to have any fun, um, <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I was a good little boy for far too long. I burst out uh, in a dramatic way, you know, mostly by writing this column in the Chronicle in San Francisco and spilling my secrets there, you know. And of course, um, your family had to learn how to accept that eventually. Although you have divorced them, I see. In the meantime, particularly. <laughs> Partic- oh, sorry about that. <laughs> the dog, the dog wants out. Um, particularly in the meantime, around you, your brother's um, support for Trump, Donald Trump, I believe was the, was the breaking point. Was it? Uh, yeah, you know that's a funny thing. That's what Facebook does for us. One of the things it does, you, you, you can't keep a you know a mist of obscurity. Is he please? Dogs never work with dogs and children. We do know this of old. Exactly, I know. <laughs> Zeke, come here. Come here. Um, yeah, um, what was I talking about? You were, you were talking about how Facebook had brought you into the knowledge yeah, well, that Facebook your brother... tells you what your parents are thinking and what your you know children are thinking. Mm. And it, it, it sort of puts everything out in the open. And it becomes harder. When I saw what my brother was standing for and speaking out about, uh, it repulsed me. And uh, 
as much as I, well, I, I don't, just can't say I love him that much anymore, but um, we had a history together. Yeah, yeah, he's still, it, he's still a hate, brother. I had to see that go, I mean, uh, but it had to because, of, you know, it, it, about the fifth time he started talking about Trump on Facebook, I could, my gag reflex kicked in, you know. And I think you, you, you have drawn comparisons here to, it literally is a divided, not only is America divided, at times family are divided over this issue. How anxious are you about, about uh, the upcoming presidential election and a potential second term? Well, I'm kind of happy that I'm living in Great Britain these days. Uh, I can say that. It's funny, you don't remove yourself from the effects of a madman in the White House, but, uh, you, you know, it's easier to bear if it's not where you're living. Uh, and I knew too well exactly what people were thinking there. I know too well. Uh, and, and he's, a, you know, Trump is just a symptom of what's happened in, in America. Uh, he came in and, you know, let the goons take over, but they were ready to take over anyway. Do you fear for what that might mean in terms of, I mean, the, the rights and the recognition that were so hard won in the period you write about in the original Tales of the City um, series, you know, right through the, 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 the 70s, 80s and 90s to the point where, in, well, the 70s and 80s, I guess you were writing about, but to the point where um, gay people did start to get the, the rights of everybody and to be recognised as people rather than something else <laughs> other, yeah, than, yeah. other than a person. Do you fear I, that that can, you know... Ha- it can remi- go away. I think it can go away, uh, depending on who's in power, you know. Every minority has issues like that that, um, uh, you know, that can be revoked, rights that can be revoked. The world moves in a cycle. Do you have any sense of that in the United Kingdom at the moment? I mean, where we have a very strong, uh, uh, well, a a strongly conservative government uh, in in place. Well, I... I think, yeah, it's in it's in place, but not very securely right now. It looks like it might be toppled, and that's encouraging to me. Um, uh, they've 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 screwed up so much and so often that people are beginning to notice. And uh, I think the next election is going to be much happier than the American one. And if you have to, then would you would you consider a little move just to dip across the pond to Ireland, which you have begun to visit um, a, a lot more recently? Obviously, since your your move to the to the United Kingdom a while back, it's a closer jaunt now for you. Uh, yeah, I know, and it's a, it's a sweet place. I love it. Um, I have friends who've moved there from the United States. I've been there for she was telling me the other day for seven years now, and uh, they are more Irish than the Irish these days. <laughs> <laughs> They've just completely embraced the culture in a lovely way, and they like the sweetness of the people and the attitudes that prevail. Um, I mean, there's something wrong in it with every place, you know. Ireland has its problems too. There, about um, that, there is no doubt. But I'm sure we would happily welcome you if you if you decided well, thank you. to take more jaunts across the pond. Lovely to have I, spoken with you this evening, Armistad, and I'll give people the details of your National Concert Hall gig in just a moment. Um, and congratulations on Mona of the Manor. Is this the 10th and final Tales of the City? It is the 10th and final. <laughs> talk, talk to you when Can't you do the 11th. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Armistad. Yeah, 
thanks for letting me be talk. <laughs> All right, no problem. That's it. Armistead Mopan, uh, Mona of the Manor, the title of the latest novel published by Doubleday and Armistead Mopan is at the National Concert Hall in Dublin 8pm on Wednesday the 20th of March and this is all part of the National Concert Hall talk series. You can find out full details on nch.ie Rembrandt, Vermeer, Rubens. These are three of the great painters of Northern Europe whose work will be on view in Turning Heads, a new exhibition at the National Gallery. The work depicts the heads of men and women, often adorned with headdresses, hats or helmets. The curator of the exhibition is Dr Lizzie Marks, curator of Dutch and Flemish art at the National Gallery. She joins me in studio this evening and we will be tweeting some of the images as we go along at RTE Arena. Uh, Turning Heads... You might explain what a tranny is to me to start off, uh, Lizzie, if you would, because I think that's kind of essential to this exhibition, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's what the exhibition will really explain. The trony is an old Dutch term. It's an old Dutch term which literally translates as face, but it's a particular genre in art history which depicts a head. And it's different from a portrait because it takes away these ideas of the person's status or anything about their identity. And when you take away those trappings, what you see is just a person standing before you and that in itself is fascinating. Let us uh, tweet a Rembrandt straight away the laughing man at RTE Arena to look at this and this is a face so full of character the smile is just extraordinarily captured. It's Rembrandt himself. This is a, it, it's not a self-portrait, but it, he was the model, as it were. That's right. So it is a trony, but Rembrandt is using his own face in order mm. to achieve this painting. It's because what we see is a lot of works in this exhibition do rely on models. But in order to maintain a smile, artists just relied on themselves. Mm. And here he is smiling and it feels like it's so fresh. But actually, the longer that you smile, it can begin to fade or become a bit stilted. But he is able to achieve this character who is so freshly painted and so brilliantly captivating that um, it really feels like we want to smile back as yeah. well. It's contagious. In that yeah, way. it is. It is quite extraordinary. And it's such a characterful face. I don't know whether he, he, he he's certainly not been kind to himself, but he, right. he looks like a very interesting man. You'd want to spend a bit of time with that That's chap right. and his laughing face. You notice his crooked teeth, too. So he's not really doing himself any yeah, favours. Yeah, but that's not, fine. Yeah. Um, now, Obviously, I've mentioned Rembrandt there. I've mentioned previously Vermeer and Rubens. And you are the curator of Dutch and Flemish art at the National Gallery. Was there something specific about the Low Countries and the Trony? Were they were they inextricably linked? I think so, because in the 17th century, it really took the art market in the Low Countries by storm. Mm. Everyone was so fascinated by this particular genre. There are a few reasons for that, one of them being that genre painting really came to the fore in the 17th century, and these were scenes of daily life. And in the same way, people were interested by the characters of daily life. So what we see in the exhibition are young people, um, and it goes all the way up to the elderly, and from different backgrounds and uh, different genders too. And it really gives a sort of slice of what Dutch and Flemish society was like at the time. 
Yeah, I'm going to tweet another one now, which will, will, I suppose, exemplify that. Uh, Johannes Vermeer, girl with a red hat at RTE Arena, if you want to see that. Although I would argue that this could be called red hat with a girl, (laughs) as much as girl with a red hat. Precisely. And this is one of uh, Vermeer's tronies. It's come to us from uh, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. We're very fortunate to have a spectacular work like this. Now, another trony that we might be more familiar familiar with by Vermeer is Girl with a Pearl Earring yeah. from the Moritz House. But this is a girl who is actually wearing two pearl earrings. Yeah, she And has. she's got this fabulous red hat, as you mentioned. And this is a really interesting feathered hat. And we have uh, interesting, a whole section in the exhibition that looks at costume. And this uh, painting really speaks to that. But she's also so beautifully rendered. And this uh, idea of light and shade comes into it because Vermeer was really fascinated in optics and uh, paints so delicately and beautifully. Yeah, and the, the other thing, that's, and this is not at all to, to minimise it, there's a kind of, a, almost a photorealism about the way this, it's certainly in the snapshot nature of it. It's as if she's sitting in a cafe and she just turns around and looks at the camera and click, he gets her. That's what the painting even though the playing with the light is a little cleverer than all of that. But it's true. And there is some sort of photographic quality because if you have a look at the tops of the chair at the bottom of the painting, one of them is in focus and the other is out of focus. And that's because Vermeer was very interested in lenses and the way in which they were able to process the world and translate it through light and uh, through the lens and in order to see the world in this new way, thanks to the latest scientific developments in the Low Countries. Um, I'll I'm going to go back to um, to Rembrandt again because this this particular trony this is the man of the uh, with the golden helmet helmet rather at RTE Arena. This whereas lots of the others have a kind of a gentle feel of them. There's a kind of a there's a darkness in this uh, soldier like character looking down at the ground with the big golden helmet on it on it on his head. He's seen a few things wherever he's been. I would argue. <laughs> Indeed, yes. This is an artist from the circle of Rembrandt from the Gemälde Gallery in Berlin, painted around 1650, so hundreds of years ago. But it feels as if we might be able to really understand and relate to him today. Mm. Again, it doesn't really look like a portrait in the formal sense because instead of presenting to the viewer, he's so introspective and inward looking. Um, What is so interesting about Tronies is it plays more with the psychological qualities Mm. of a character. But his face is really shrouded and what we see really is this golden helmet that is incredibly painted. And full of detail. That's right, with uh, impasto paint, so thickly layered paint, in order to give off this amazing sheen of it reflecting the light. And and artists are really showing their skills here because there's such a spectrum of light and shade mm. in this painting. The depths in the background all the way to that sheen of the metal on his head and around his neck too. Yeah, but for all that detail in the helmet and all the eye-catching light nature of it, I still look down at the face and say, what has he seen? There's such a wonderful <laughs> character within that. And you said the circle of Rembrandt here. So these these were painters who had had learned from Rembrandt or who were in that milieu at the time. That's is that right. what we're they talking about? They were really about? influenced by him and this exhibition is able to bring out some artists who maybe people aren't so familiar with but they were so adept at painting tronies and it's really doing a sort of who's who of the greatest artists of this age. Who's Michael Schwertz then or Schwertz? I'm not sure that I'm not that familiar with him. Is he a well-known artist? He's he's becoming more and more well-known. Mm. He was very successful in his time and it's exciting that this exhibition is able to show three works by him. I'm going to tweet head of a woman now at RTE Arena. 
he is such an excellent painter of tronies. There is something about him and the way in which he paints, which I really can't put my finger on, no matter how hard I look at his work. But it feels as if we're looking at a person face to face in the flesh in the very moment. And not only that, I've I've said this to you just before we, we came to air. When I look at this particular head of a woman, I feel even in the dress, even in the gaze of the woman herself, I don't know what constitutes a 21st century face, but this looks as if it was painted two days ago. It's that fresh. Yeah. And what we're trying to work on for this exhibition is to really generate those experiences, those profound moments that we get to have with people who are with us in the present and yet they were painted as much as 400, even 500 years ago. Mm. And and that that freshness in her face in particular, is that something in the painting style that makes it look very modern? I think it's just him being able to use oil paints so well. It's the soft layering up of the different glazes that creates these illusions that that make you feel like you are really looking at a human being. Uh, let's go to Peter Paul Rubens now and study of an old woman at RTE Arena if, if you want to see this. Again, a wonderfully characterful face here, but notable given that we were talking about costume earlier on. Uh, how important is the presence of a headdress or the presence of a hat? Because this woman has a, a kind of a, some kind of a headdress on there uh, 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 through her hair. Yes. And this would have been typical for someone who uh, might have been working in a household at the time. She's uh, affectionately known as Rubens's laundress because uh, she is recorded in that way. Um, and we see her face come up not only by Rubens, but also by Rubens's associate, uh, Jacob Jordans. And uh, this face then appears, reappears. And she's a very elderly woman. Mm. We can see through the hollowness of her cheekbones um, and also her tight smile, which suggests that maybe she doesn't have so many teeth, so much teeth. Um, And what's really remarkable about this work is the watery eyes that she has, which also really make her so captivating and alive. Uh, The other thing to note is that her nose uh, casts a shadow over her lips, which isn't the most flattering of Mm. shadows. And a portrait would typically not display that. An artist would use their creative licence to remove it. And this comes back to the kind of inverted commas photorealism that I was talking about, even though we wouldn't have spoken necessarily about photorealism at that point in time. These have a real contemporary feel of them. I mentioned that about the face of the last woman in particular as well. Has that got to do with that that style of painting that they were using and what the trony was, which was, it's not a portrait, it's a snapshot of somebody. Exactly, and just trying to capture their essence of who they are. And in a way, when you take away all the sort of social ideas, then what you have is a human. And we're surrounded by humans today Mm. too. It it is so relatable and accessible. Um, And that's why I think everyone will really be touched by this exhibition because there's always going to be a work within the show that people will understand and really connect with. And while the the paintings have been gathered from from galleries all over the world, and I'm sure that's hugely important and for people to lend things like this is is so vital to an exhibition of this nature but it is a collaboration between the National Gallery and the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in in Antwerp how how important is that collaborative side of things I mean, it's terrific to be able to work with them on this exhibition and also because of the expertise um, from our side and as well from Antwerp. We've been working with Dr. Nico van Hout and Dr. Kuhn Bulkens, who have been uh, studying specifically uh, Rubens' study heads and uh, they've put together wonderful research for it and it's been great then to come together Mm. with them, pull together our our expertise to put together uh, an exhibition with amazing loans as fantastic as this. Well, they certainly are the ones that I've seen are incredible to look at and so, so... 
such a contemporary feel of them, uh, really notable. Thanks so much for coming in to us this evening. Uh, and me. that that uh, was Lizzie talking to us about uh, turning heads, Rubens, Rembrandt and Vermeer. It's on at the National Gallery of Ireland from February 24th to May 27th, nationalgallery.ie. Dr Lizzie Marks, the curator of the exhibition, is talk, talking to us this evening. And that is our lot for tonight. Polly Shields and Niall Fitzmaurice researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Sound supervision this evening was by Mark Dwyer and the programme was produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.